Okay, everyone. Um, if you all could take your seats as soon as possible. Um, we have here a, a illustrious panel, um, leaded by uh, Michael Turpin, who is one of the earliest adopters of crypto and one of the biggest investors in all of the blockchain industry. Michael is a founder of Transform Group, a leading advisory and PR firm in the blockchain industry. Uh, he's got over more than 300 clients to his credit, including Ethereum, Augur, Ripple, and Kraken. He also owns a blockchain accelerator in Hamilton, Bermuda, and he's a managing director of Transform Ventures, uh, which invests in the DeFi and NFT sector. He's also part of a DeFi studio and a venture foundry. He also co-chairs a, a creation platform, and he's co-founder of BitAngels, the world's first uh, angel network dedicated to digital, current, digital assets. He's also involved in two other funds, um, one of which is an algorithmic, algorithmic trading fund, and the other is a digital currency fund. As well, uh, he's the founder of the Caribbean Blockchain Association, which he founded with the incredible Roger Ver and also Gabrielle Abed. Uh, joining us from Puerto Rico, where he lives with his wife and two dogs, is Michael Turpin. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Thank you. And since a little older buyer, we have one toy poodle. Um, at any rate, and the algorithmic uh, trading fund is called Trader Capital, and Michelangelo's in the group right in front of me. Um, and then the uh, digital currency fund is Alphabet, which is uh, out of London. And any questions on that or anything else I have, uh, please let me know afterwards. Um, so definitely have a very uh, fun panel here. It's uh, having put on a number of conferences over the years, um, Transform Ventures uh, has an events group. Um, there's two conference series that have been going on since 2014. One of them just happened in Miami, which is where uh, we launched Ethereum eight years ago. It's called the North American Bitcoin Conference. And the other is Coin Agenda, which we're going to be putting on our eighth uh, annual um, global show in uh, November in Las Vegas. We also do one in the Caribbean. It'll be our, I think, sixth year, um, which is right after Art Basel. So everybody, you know goes and parties at Art Basel, and they come down and go to Puerto Rico Blockchain Week. And then we also have our fourth European one, which is uh, we were fortunate enough to actually get uh, the three days before the Formula One in Monaco. So we're jammed right between uh, Monaco and the uh, Cannes Film Festival. Um, at any rate, um, so w w the reason I brought that up is that it's always tough to get family offices to, to crypto conferences because a lot of times they really don't want to talk about uh, family offices outside of a family office environment. Well, here we are in a family office environment, so we get to ask all the hard questions. Um, so I'm going to um, uh, start with the introductions, and then I'm going to, um, since a lot of the questions that people wanted to ask had some overlap, I'm going to sort of just throw it out to the floor. Um, actually, I find it much better if, um, uh, let's see, so uh, let, 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 we'll start with um, uh, Priscilla, thank you, Priscilla uh, uh, Cerniosa, uh, who heads up strategic fundraising and management at, as executive director of the Social Alpha Foundation. Um, in that role, she uh, led uh, fundraising efforts uh, in Asia for the University of Chicago um, 
Uh, Booth School of Business is part of their most uh, recent $5 billion campaign. Uh, 20 years of experience uh, in strategic consulting, corporate finance, at uh, little companies like uh, Lehman Brothers, American Express, Warner Lambert, General Electric Capital. Um, she has her bachelor's uh, degree from North, uh, Northeastern and MBA from uh, prestigious University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Um, I'm, I'm going to give everybody sort of bio in a row and then throw out some general questions. So uh, uh, Chris, uh, Chris Hunter, um, is co-founder of Galoy, a company behind Bitcoin Beach Wallet. Uh, you're the uh, sort of um, fundamentalist that we have on the panel for Bitcoin. Um, and uh, so I'm talking a lot about El Salvador, which, which again, was a real, um, uh, I, I think, landmark um, in the history of cryptocurrency to have a sovereign nation adopt Bitcoin as one of their uh, currencies. Of course, they'd abandoned having their own central bank because they weren't very good at it, but there are another 20 or so countries that have the U.S. dollar, which means they don't get to print anything and they get to be devalued by us. So hopefully there's more countries around who do that. Um, let's see. So... Uh, uh, mainly talking about that. He's also, uh, I can talk to him about Lightning uh, Network. Ask me about Lightning. So we'll, we'll have some conversations about that. He's got a shorter bio here. Um, Alfie, Alfie, Alfie. Uh, so Alfie is uh, actually why I'm here because uh, uh, he's at a company uh, called Canada that uh, I'm uh, an advisor to. Um, uh, the ecopreneur formerly known as, this is kind of like Prince, formerly known as Alfie Ristam, uh, has uh, established himself by the way, I have a uh, um, uh, one one of the events that uh, was not in that most recent bios. We started doing these things called uh, Satoshi Round. Sorry, Satoshi Roundtable is actually something I'm going to uh, next weekend, which is uh, um, kind of the, it, it's sort of like the Bittenberg of Bitcoin. It's like the top 150 entrepreneurs in the world in Bitcoin that go to a secret location somewhere outside of the United States and kind of talk Bitcoin for a while. I'm I'm one of only three people who's gone to all eight. But the Satoshi Salon is something I started in Miami this last week. We're going to try to roll it out to 100 uh, um, cities that have uh, interest in uh, kind of investing in, uh, in, in, in uh, cryptocurrency and then occasionally talking to startups. And it's going to be in a person's home, and they're going to get an NFT that allows them then to get to any Satoshi Salon in the world. And Naples definitely would be on that uh, list, I think, of the, uh, the top 100. So anybody who wants to uh, sort of – be a host for the Naples uh, Satoshi Salon. Come up to me afterwards. Um, so um, let's see. Uh, the reason I mentioned this because the first one in Los Angeles will be at Prince's former estate, uh, which is a 38,000 square foot place in Bel Air the day before the Super Bowl. Anybody who's going to be there Super Bowl week, let me know and I'll get you an invitation. Um, so Alfie's based in L.A. I've been to his office. He's the award-winning author of the Bioman Chronicles and a leading expert in the fields of narrative design, screenwriting, game design, and IRL in real life, social change. Um, <clears throat> he has a full scholarship uh, for his doctoral studies in quantum physics. Uh, perhaps I'll ask him about uh, some of those areas in terms of breaking Bitcoin um, from the University of St. Andrews, the number one university in the UK. Um, we'll ask Oxford about that. Um, and for the first 15 years of his career, Alfie held senior <coughs> consulting and management roles in banking tech um, and uh, known for building world-class teams uh, um, sent for my iPhone. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thought I'd read that. Uh, and then uh, Sandra. Uh, Sandra Thimile Lufkin. Okay. Uh, Co-CIO and principal of her family office with her husband, Chauncey. 
Uh, she's been investing in numerous venture funds as well as seed to growth equity stage companies in three areas. Uh, main areas, blockchain, enterprise SaaS, and, and AI. Uh, in addition, uh, Sandra is uh, Chief Operating Officer of Hut Capital, leading blockchain venture capital fund of funds, and a direct investment fund that is, provides exposure to the top blockchain and crypto startups globally via single commitment. Uh, Sandra's experience spans over three decades, including um, uh, working with a, a top private equity and venture manager, managers playing a pivotal role at another small company called BlackRock uh, and their massive growth. Um, and um, she also uh, was on the uh, commodity and f- f- uh, forex training floors of a little place like Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs. So we have a very prestigious uh, panel. One thing in my bio, because it was a little bit older that I sent uh, – you know, cobbler, cobblers, uh, kids don't have shoes, and I need to really update my bio on a few things. But uh, um, part of Transform Ventures, which is a separate entity from Transform Group, uh, Transform Group is the uh, is the PR um, and uh, um, uh, marketing firm that I started many years ago as the first in the crypto space. That's now kind of spun off and being run by very good people. I'm sort of just kind of overseeing it and, and, and doing some roll-ups underneath it. Really spend most of my time at Transform Ventures. Um, which also includes Transform Capital, which is my family office, and uh, overwhelmingly investing in uh, in, in DeFi, uh, Metaverse, other crypto uh, assets. And uh, my lovely wife, who's still sleeping right now, uh, heads up our real estate investments, is very good at it. Um, so we're going to start with a couple of questions that appeared on everybody's list. How do family offices... Um, determine risk and reward in an area as new as uh, cryptocurrency? Because uh, it seemed like for a while it was just like, well, I heard about Bitcoin, but I'm not sure about it. So I'll start with the family offices and uh, tell us how you really came down this sort of path and where you are today. Okay. Well, for us, our journey began in um, 2013. Say it was a really um, it was hard to actually educate yourself. So we we um, we really reached out to a lot of our different friends. Um, I have to say Cambridge Associates were very kind to us. Um, so we sat down with both people who have now gone on to be in blockchain for 100% of the time. Um, and there was another guy that was very pivotal for our education. So it was really starting with all education. It was still so so new. Uh, no one really knew so much about it. And then um, my husband started to really invest in just what most family offices do, which is, you know, the uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and opening of the wallets and what a headache that was and the agita that you have with the private keys and whether you lose them and you're going to lose all of your assets. So, I mean, that was a big hurdle for I think family offices to um, to um, jump over. Um, so we just started out slowly, and then in 2016 we really went in a, a much larger. Uh, so what we decided to do for our family office is uh, my husband would do all the liquid because I don't have the stomach to do it. Um, and I'm, I've been in venture for 25 years, so um, for me, I like that so much more because um, it's. But it's hard to analyze companies in this space. Um, and what I have found, and what I think a lot of family offices have, have found, is that you really have to, because um, no one had track records. So when you look at a venture fund, you didn't really have even a track record. So you had to base it upon what they'd done in the past, but a lot of their past experience didn't even apply 
to what blockchain is now. Um, so what we had to do was really speak with what they have invested in in this space, and then you actually, you know, you speak with the CEOs of those companies, and you see how um, much that they have um, added value. And we had to take a leap of faith. But we just kind of felt that the biggest trend was that this is something, the, the train has left the station, and that we wanted to be on it early and not late. And so we started to invest slowly uh, in some of the bigger name funds. Um, and, uh, and then we really kind of, you know, grown into uh, doing some directs. Along with our um, venture managers, we leaned on their due diligence. Um, and then I'll go through, you know, the, the rest later, but that's how. So we had started out with um, Pantera. Dan Moorhead was, um, you know, considered one of the very, very first funds um, in this space. So we had invested in, in them. He, so, so he was the, the, the very first. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, uh, happy to share. And then we uh, invested in um, Dragonfly. And they, they have done very well. And we invested in, in um, Blockchain. Um, and since then, we have morphed more into doing a lot of the direct deals. What we have found is um, we do like pre-seed and seed. Um, we feel that that's the area to be in. And when you, when you were investing in 2016, that was the only area to be in. There was no growth, no growth equity at the time. And now with valuations, now who, who knows if valuations will come in with the correction that we've just had. But, um, but we, uh, we still like that space. And then I'll go through later, you know, some of the other direct investments that we've made. More to come. Yep. Yeah, so I might sit. It, well, I'll stand. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm Dylan. I've been in crypto for six years. Um, most recently, before being head of ventures at Advanced Blockchain AG, ran an $80 million crypto hedge fund that did early stage VC. And then before that was at a big crypto asset management firm for two years called Iconic Holding that Michael Novogratz, Alan Howard, and Christian Ungermeyer were the main investors for. And then before that was actually at a crypto hedge fund out of uh, Beijing and Hong Kong doing OTC and, mar and market making. Um, so I feel I, I really loved your responses because – one of my jobs at Iconic Holding uh, was to actually do diligence all of the VC firms and all of the crypto hedge funds, and I did this for years. And so we would develop um, family office relationships because um, we were total experts in uh, which fund did uh, which trading strategy, et cetera, and, and who the individuals were. And it was such a difficult job because so many of the people that manage crypto hedge funds, I mean, you know this, you know this, are people that have been doing crypto for very long, a very long time. And so you have to have been in crypto for years and years to know the person, to know things about them. Many people don't have traditional backgrounds. A lot of the funds are so new, they don't have big track records. So you are making a bet, and you're making a bet on the person. And so... Um, Returns have actually been phenomenal in, in crypto VC and, and hedge funds. But, for example, Multicoin, um, their first fund returned over 200 times um, in about four to five years. Um, and the founder, Kyle Somali, was uh, 25 years old uh, when they first launched. So you are taking a bet on younger people. Um, and so I think that a lot of things that do matter are um, how early the person did get into crypto and how well-connected they are. Um, and then if their educational background, et cetera. But we would do all types of due diligence. So um, 
Yep, and then so then my next recommendation would be to go to a professional like like us and to talk to us about it, um, and you know not not necessarily just deploy without doing tons of diligence. And so, yeah. I'm going to make a comment. When I was on family office panels not that long ago, well, we're still thinking about Bitcoin. I don't want to understand. I mean, between the two of you, you you killed it. I mean, first of all, Pantera, they were really, I mean, I think if you got in early, the, the overall returns are some ridiculous thing like 116,000% because they were investing in Bitcoin when it was $100. Um, and Multicoil, I, I actually know Kyle. Um, he's a good friend with uh, my Bit Angels co-founder in 2013, David Johnston. And uh, I met Kyle actually when he was doing a uh, Google Glasses uh, startup that he dropped to start uh, with Tishar Multicoin. And um, I'm not a direct um, LP there, but um, I'm, a, I'm a significant holder of DLTX, which uh, um, has a significant. Uh, they're, they're kind of the uh, they're a Norwegian stock that is. Uh, David Johnston is one of the uh, founders there, and they want to be the uh, Berkshire Hathaway of, of uh, crypto. And so one of the things they contributed was a lot of their multi-coin uh, um, LP position, which, again, Kyle uh, has just killed it. I mean, partially since the, they – I mean – they got into uh, Solana when it was like tiny, tiny, tiny and uh, other things like that. I'm a real big fi fan of them. And so, um, you know, do, do your research and you're, you're absolutely correct. It's got to be people who, uh, um, you know, have been in early and it's a mix, right? Because uh, Dan does come from a traditional um, uh, hedge fund uh, and, and institutional background. But, you know, when he started um, diversifying from Bitcoin and went into kind of a uh, – a uh, hundred million dollar fund that was just for coins and and new th assets. He brought in uh, my friend Joey Crew, who also just moved to Puerto Rico, who is the co-founder of Augur. And um, you know he founded Augur when he was twenty, so I think he's twenty five now. And uh, you know he's been making some great bets. So um, let's see. Um, you're also family office, yeah, okay? Say, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I think. Uh, we kind of went about it backwards in terms of the family office. Uh, I joined um, Jahan, uh, Kinetic, uh, Cap founder of Kinetic Capital, and he started investing in crypto, I think, back in 2013 and then started uh, Kinetic, I think, maybe 2015. Charlie, is that right? 2016, maybe? And so I joined him in April, and he said, help me put some structure around all, my, all of these investments that he's doing exclusively in blockchain and, and crypto. So I really bring more of the traditional uh, business practices and traditional strategy, finance, operations kind of practices to what he's doing because he really just sees blockchain as you, as you do as just um, life-changing, world-changing, and he's kind of the visionary, and I'm trying to put the, you know, the uh, bumpers, <laughs> Now, I, I think a good thing to, to realize about, um, about this whole sector is a few things. Number one, we're still very early. A lot of people come to me and say, Oh, you know what? I missed it when the, someone told me about it when it was eight dollars. Someone told me again when it was eighty dollars, and someone told me it was eight thousand dollars. I guess I guess I missed out. Now there's thirty-five thousand. First of all, it's not just Bitcoin, and if you sort of um, look at Bitcoin as a, as a you know kind of the granddaddy, and uh, we'll hear from the uh, fundamentalist here, um, you know it's it's most likely over the next 
20 years to, you know, kind of continue its relatively predictable growth cycle. I mean, there's some wild swings in between, just like there are in Amazon stock. And, and it's actually now more down to uh, the swings of this year was pretty much, you know, just going between 30 and 60 as opposed to before the first halving, you went from a half a cent to $30 and back down to a dollar again. You had 100x uh, during the first halving from uh, um, from the halving to the all-time high. At, the, at that time, you know, 2012 to 2013, that was over 12 months. Then you ended up going uh, and doing a 30x over 18 months from 630 to 19.3. And um, I've said for quite a while that, you know, I think it's going to be somewhere near 100 at the top of the peak and probably 24 months because 12, 18, 24, there's no uh, complete, you know, sort of uh, looks like for a while it might speed up a little bit just because of all the money printing going on. But it also looks like because there's so many altcoin alternatives and so many people talking about the Ethereum flipping that it's it's all it's never completely uh, um, you know uh, scientific. It's a little bit of a you know art, science, and voodoo uh, and YouTube. Um, I, I encourage everybody who's interested in the space uh, to uh, watch several great people on YouTube um, for Bitcoin itself and Ethereum. There's nobody better than Benjamin Cowan. Uh, he has a very, he has a free daily. 10 or 15 minute update called Into the Cryptoverse. He is dry as toast with really bad graphics, but he has great information. And I also encourage you to buy the uh, premium version. I have nothing to do with it. It's about 1200 bucks a year. And he has all these like chat rooms and, uh, uh, you know, he says when he sells, right? And he sold um, uh, 85% of his Bitcoin um, when it was 67,000 in April. And uh, that was all of his Bitcoin that was, as he said, that was not in. Um, uh, that, that was not in short, short-term capital gains territory. I'm in Puerto Rico. I'm in Puerto Rico, so I don't have to worry about it. It's into the cryptoverse. Uh, and it's Benjamin. Uh, it's it's ben, Benjamin Cowan. Um, there's a couple other folks. If you like sort of the the degen coins, um, Ran Nunuer, who used to be with CNBC. He's the guy that gave me the nickname the Crypto Godfather when he was at CNBC. Uh, he's now. Um, I just saw him this past week. He was in Miami filming things. He's now with something called Crypto Banter. And then for NFTs, um, Elio Trades. I'd say those are probably the three that uh, I think have the best information. There's a whole bunch of that out there. And there's actually a few folks that are now aggregating the information, putting AI around it and saying what were their things that they recommended, how they do afterwards. And um, that those are going to become very important tools. So I'm going to switch now to sort of the people who have been um, trying to raise money from family offices. So... Uh, uh, Alfie, do you want to sort of uh, talk about, since you've been on both sides of the fence, uh, how, uh, how, how, how do you approach uh, family office environments? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I've been grateful uh, to actually know Kara uh, uh, and Sandy, and more recently, Chauncey. And so they've been uh, kind enough to actually grant me a significant grant to help me to bring my project to fruition. And that's the beauty of uh, uh, NFTs and the crypto space is that there's a lot of opportunity for non-dilutive funding. So a little bit of seed capital can go a long way if it's, if it's uh, uh, implemented correctly. So uh, we, we, we've got a significant grant from uh, uh, Chauncey and from Sandy's uh, family uh, foundation. And so we're using that to uh, uh, launch an NFT collection. And so from that, we can raise a few million dollars through the NFT collection, and then uh, we're going to gamify that collection, and then uh, we're going to do a token sale around that collection. And, you know, we can raise uh, north of $20 million if we, if we do it right with the right kind of marketing. And so that, those types of uh, 
funding mechanisms are now available, and they are, again, non-dilutive, but does require being very smart and understanding the power of the community. Uh, so it's less about pursuing and chasing after VCs and family offices. It's really about building community. And that it doesn't require that much capital, but it does require a lot of um, communication, a lot of time, and a lot of uh, relationship building. Ah. Uh, oh, absolutely. So, so with um, uh, what I'm doing, for example, is uh, I've got my my um, Defend Nature Interactive is the name of the the Metaverse Studio, and so uh, we have characters that we've created, and then we're creating a a collection of 10,000 of these characters, and then we're selling them to the community. For uh, we've yet to finalize a price for, but for around a few hundred dollars, right? So that is you're selling basically a piece of art to the community. Now, they're investing in that piece of art thinking that, hey, you know, not only is it going to be a piece of art, but it's going to have utility in the future. Now, we're also uh, uh, creating play-to-earn games around these NFTs. And so for my game, for example, you'll be able to breed these characters and you'll be able to earn a fee, breed them. So <laughs> we're breeding NFTs and you're, and you're making money off of the breeding fees. So, and there's, a f there's some great examples out there. Axie Infinity is one of them. Uh, it's got a multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar market cap. There's also Zed Run, which is a digital horse racing. Uh, and you can breed the horses. And people are making tens of thousands of dollars uh, through breeding fees, breeding digital horses. So there's a whole... Uh, it sounds strange to us because, you know, we're not necessarily immersed in that digital uh, ecosphere. But if you're, if you're born a gamer, uh, you're buying digital assets from day one. The beauty of uh, digi uh, NFTs and, and play-to-earn games is that um, you actually own the asset. If you're on Fortnite, Fortnite you uh, gamers are spending billions of dollars on digital assets in the game, but they don't actually own the asset. Uh, uh, crypto uh, blockchain technology allows the uh, buyer of the NFT of the asset to actually own the asset. And then you can do some amazing things, some amazing tokenomics uh, uh, with those digital assets. And so there's a whole revolution coming. Um, and uh, we're at the, uh, these are very, very early days, and so we're super excited to be uh, collaborating with some of the uh, uh, more traditional game designers. I, my, my games were designed from the, with the guy who designed Farmville, for example. So we're taking that kind of game expertise, but we're applying it, uh, wrapping tokenomics around that, and NFTs around that. So, yeah. I will say do not laugh at play to earn um, the very first time that I presented in front of uh, um, family offices and uh, other uh, well-heeled investors was I uh, my, my, the first place that I uh, I spoke at a non-Bitcoin crowd was in July of 2013 in New York. The price of Bitcoin was $66, um, and I spoke in front of about 100 people at the New York Angels. And they had just listened to a pitch where a woman rode up on a bicycle, took her helmet off, and explained about how she was going to go and raise $10 million for a social bicycle app. And everybody's asking very serious questions about, like, well, how are you going to make revenue? Well, we're probably going to use advertising. You know, there are a lot of bicycle manufacturers and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're asking all these serious questions. And I'm thinking, social bicycle app? Okay. Um, my, my friend who was the chairman at the time said, they did sell that company to Uber. Of course, it pivoted four times and ended up becoming something like Lyft, you know, or not Lyft, but the, the, the like one of those little bicycle things. So they, like a motorized bike. So they pivoted about four times. The original plan did not work. At any rate, 
um, I then came up and told a hundred people about Bitcoin and how I thought it was, uh, you know, an, uh, a phenomenal new opportunity, a new asset class that was going to change the world. And, you know, a room about twice the size looked at me like I was selling skin cream from Mars. And I asked if there was any questions. I went through how it worked and, you know, what, 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 how its growth pattern was going to be and what, it, what its utility was. And, uh, literally no questions. And then during the break, this, uh, elderly gentleman came in to me and said, son, you look like a nice young man. I'm, I'm, I, I was a professor of economics at Princeton for many years. I have looked into this Bitcoin and it only has two things you can do with it. Drugs and prostitution. I, I suggest you run away from this as fast as possible before you get arrested. So don't laugh at for later earn, uh, gaming. Uh, NFT gaming um, is uh, the next frontier in terms of growth. I'll give you a couple of stats. Um, gaming itself in the last five years has gone from $100 billion to a $300 billion industry. There are 3 billion, um, sorry, million. Um, there are 3 billion uh, gamers in the world um, out of a world population of seven, and that's growing. And um, yet there's only about $30 billion of, uh, of market cap um, that that is involved in gaming, and that's up from zero two years ago. So um, as the percentage of people uh, who realize they can make money while they're gaming instead of spend money while they're gaming grows, there's going to be other axes. Axie actually launched at uh, Coin Agenda two years ago, and uh, 10 cents a token, and I did not invest. It did not even win one of the top five awards. Um, but, uh, boy, they sure did well. They went from 10 cents a token to 125, I think, at the top. And, uh, you know, even people who have been in this space a while miss things. So you have to constantly pay attention to what's going on. So, um, with that as my pivot to uh, talk about Bitcoin, I will let uh, Maximus Guy talk about what's going on in El Salvador and where you see, um, Bitcoin fitting in, in terms of, uh, Lightning Network and becoming a unit of account, which is how you really become money. Sure. Thank you. Chris Hunter, um, just by way of uh, background, before I got into Bitcoin eight years ago and started building on Bitcoin, I spent most of my career uh, focused on climate change issues and renewable energy, and so um, built a number of companies quite successfully from scratch there. So happy to also talk about the intersection of energy and Bitcoin if people want to have that conversation as well. Um, to the question, just a little bit of context. You know, if you look from a historical perspective, we were gifted the public Internet in 1983, and we were given a number of protocols for free, HTTP, SMTP, FTP. We were given no protocol for native identity on the Internet, and we were given no protocol for native money over the Internet. I'm not a true Bitcoin maximalist because I do believe NFTs and many other protocols will have value, but last time I checked, money is kind of important to humanity, and in my estimation, many years ago, Bitcoin already won the battle to become Internet-native digital money, money over IP, and we can talk about the principles behind that, and one of the most fundamental ones relates to, there's many attributes of Bitcoin, and this is why it's difficult for people to get their heads around, but one of the most fundamental attributes relates to government, gover governance, where it's written in digital stone. You can never have more than 21 million Bitcoin, and nobody controls it. No actor, no entity, no government, which is different than Ethereum and every other protocol, and so much as that no matter how well-intentioned people are, once an organization gets to some degree of scale, whether a business or government or even a charity, corruption always becomes involved. And Bitcoin is truly uncorruptible simply because it's math on the machine. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think over the long term, it will prove out that unlike all the
all the fiat currencies that are being debased or anything else that could be controlled by humans, Bitcoin will become the most widely used money in the world. And, you know, the other bit that I'll say to give context for El Salvador is that, you know, people read Satoshi's white paper that he published on Halloween 2008, and they read peer-to-peer electronic cash, right? And they say, oh, cash, digital cash, I should compare the Bitcoin base layer protocol to Visa or PayPal, something else that feels like digital cash, and that's where they go wrong. And my company, we published our thesis 18 months ago where we lay out you should be comparing the Bitcoin protocol to Fedwire, not to PayPal or Visa. And Fedwire is managed by the Federal Reserve, the central bank of our um, great country, and that's where all final settlement of dollars happens, right? And most people don't know how the money system works, but Fedwire is a private members club. There's only 9,000 entities that access it. I doubt anybody in this room has access to Fedwire. I certainly don't, right? It only operates a limited number of hours per week, right? It, it, it's not extensible, and you have final settlement on, on Fedwire in three to five days. If you swipe your card today to check out of a hotel, that settlement on Fedwire will probably happen Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday of this week. The Bitcoin base layer protocol is completely different. It operates 24-7, 365. It's non-discriminatory. If you're a human being, with an internet connection, you can access the Bitcoin base layer protocol. It's completely extensible, and people say Bitcoin's slow. Bitcoin's fast. You have final settlement in Bitcoin basically after three confirmations or 30 minutes, not three to five days. And so in our thesis, we lay out, just like we built all these layers on Fedwire post-World War II, starting with commercial banks, then in 1956, something called Diners Club, 1958, the precursor to Visa, credit cards. We've got commercial banks, credit cards, ATM networks, peer-to-peer like Venmo and PayPal. We're going to build the same layers on top of Bitcoin, which gets to Lightning, which is a layer two on top of Bitcoin, which is what we're building on, which makes it easy and fast, basically instantaneous and nearly free to settle a transaction, right? You can think of it somewhat analogously to credit cards, but it has much more interesting applications than just being fast and, and cheap, which it is. And so that's what led us to El Salvador, where a year and a half ago, summer of 2020, I went to all the fancy VCs to raise seed capital for my business because we want to build the number one infrastructure company to make it easy for people to set up a Bitcoin bank with a push of a button, right? So we don't want to be the bank. We're a software as a service company. But whether you're a company or a community or a government, you can use our tech stack to offer banking solutions to your constituents. And I went to Pomp and Nick Carter and Meltem, these people I'd known for years, and they said, we love you and Nicholas, my partner. We totally believe your thesis is 100% right in terms of how the world's going to evolve, and we're giving you zero money because we think you're five years too early. And so in August of 2020, on the back of all that rejection, literally every VC in the world rejected us. We bootstrapped the company on our own. We went to El Salvador, and we focused on this small town of 3,000 people on the Pacific coast, relatively impoverished. Average wage is about 400 U.S. dollars per month. And we built for them not just a wallet. It's called the Bitcoin Beach Wallet. It's a very sophisticated wallet, both on Google and um, Apple iOS, but a complete back-end banking infrastructure, which is pretty sophisticated, and we could talk about that if people are interested. And we proved in this small town where people had never had a bank account, merchants never had any kind of credit card terminal solution, truly a cash economy, we proved that you could do tens of thousands of transactions per week on this layer of lightning and teach people how to use and provide access to financial services. We basically created a postcard from the future, right? And this this is going to happen square which just rebranded as Block, led by Jack Dorsey, two weeks ago enabled Lightning and all their Cash App wallets, right? Cash App is bigger than Venmo in most of the U.S. right now. So this this wave is coming whether you like it or not. And what we built in El Salvador proved that this stuff works. It's not five years too early. Last June, President Bukele got up in Miami and said Bitcoin will become legal tender in country, and that went into effect. 
in September. So that's the context there. So I have complete conviction that if we're talking about money over the Internet, Bitcoin has already won that battle. And we and many others in the industry are building solutions to make it very easy. And I, I would say within 10 to 15 years, Bitcoin will be the most widely used money in the world, even more so than U.S. dollar. And the U.S. dollar is not going to go away, but Bitcoin is just has so many advantages that we can get into those details. And El Salvador is just the tip of the sphere here. Thank you for that. And um, it's very interesting just sort of uh, how um, uh, store of value, not only for Bitcoin, but for across multi-chains, uh, even uh, 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 you know, someone considered to be sort of a top early evangelist for Bitcoin, Andreas Antonopoulos, uh, is not a maximalist, uh, and, and he's basically believes that there will be, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of many chains, but really one kind of uh, interoperable, uh, you know, blockchain of value. Uh, and, and a good example of that is Axie Infinity has been mentioned a few times. Um, Axie actually has its own native currency that now has something like $600 million stored in wallets by people who do not have bank accounts. It took off in the Philippines, um, really went viral there. That's That's also where, like, Social media first took off um, when when, when uh, Twitter launched, when Facebook launched, um, when uh, Friendster launched. I mean, that was a very early place that it took off. Uh, and the fact that there are so many countries in the world that it's very hard to get banking accounts. I, I mean, I live in the Caribbean. Um, Puerto Rico is, uh, you know, part of the United States, but it's also smack dab in the middle of the Caribbean. We are a Caribbean, uh, you know, um, uh, island in the, that, that, that is also U.S. territory. And so um, you look at the Caribbean, Gabriel Abed, who, uh, again, is, was mentioned, uh, he, I, and Roger Veer, who, uh, um, you know, is a St. Kitts uh, uh, um, citizen, although he, he now spends most of his time in, uh, in St. Bart's because he's worth about $20 billion. He got into Bitcoin back when it was a dollar and bought a quarter of a million of them, um, almost crashed at Mount Gox just, just by that size of order. Um, and he's called Bitcoin Jesus because he was just going around giving away Bitcoin to people just to try it out when it was like a dollar uh, or two dollars or five dollars or ten dollars. And so many people are like, oh, damn, what did I do with that? <laughs> with that fifty dollars that and, and, you know, he's now kind of Bitcoin cash Jesus because um, he uh, got very frustrated with the. Uh, uh, the fork in Bitcoin that led to Bitcoin Cash and then another fork that led to uh, Bitcoin uh, Satoshi Vision uh, when Craig Wright said, I'm Satoshi. We won't get into that whole battle. But, um, you know, I, last time I ran into uh, Roger, he gave me $100 worth of, uh, of Bitcoin Cash. Not that I already didn't have it. He was just like, yeah, give it to your friends, you know, show it around, like, you know, uh, et cetera. So he's still at it. Um, but the Caribbean, the reason I brought that up is that Something like 80% of the people in the Caribbean are unbanked. It's very hard to get a bank account um, in much of the world, and yet anybody has the ability to be their own bank. That was the original theme of, uh, of blockchain.com, which is a very early wallet that was seed-funded by Roger Veer. Um, and so how many people in the audience here have at least one Satoshi of any kind of cryptocurrency? Raise your hands. Okay, it's about half. The other half, talk to the panelists, um, you know, really uh, it, it, it's something that's important to understand. Once you, once you, most people who tell me like Bitcoin's a scam, Bitcoin's a fraud, I was like, have you ever been on a, have you ever used Bitcoin? No. That's like saying a car is never going to replace the horse and you've never been in a car. 
So um, at any rate, there's a lot of other experts in the in the room. Uh, I mentioned I'm, a, I'm an investor in uh, Tradery, Tradery Capital and Tradery Labs. Michelangelo is here, is uh, happy to explain all sorts of things about Bitcoin as well. And I'm going to ask, answer some questions from the audience, um, some fun ones here, and then we'll see if there's any others before we run out of time. Uh, first one, what are your favorite themes for 2022, DeFi or interoperability? I would answer mine as saying uh, NFT and metaverse. For myself, I definitely would say the metaverse. On behalf of Jahan, he would definitely say NFTs. <laughs> yep. But also play to earn. Yep. That's all in the same, yeah. I think that's all in the same area. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So um, our – DeFi was last year, and it's still kind of going into its next iteration. Once the uh, SEC decides that they're not going to, like, be stomping at anybody who's not a bank who does DeFi, I think it will explode when the average person – not the people in this room, but the average person who's got – a 0.7% savings account realized they could be making like 10% on DeFi, um, there's going to be a, a, a real second wave of explosion in DeFi. Yeah, I agree. Um, we specialize in DeFi and interoperability as a firm. Um, so I'm always bullish, and I think that that's uh, going to happen uh, pretty imminently. But I'm also leading us into the metaverse. Um, so we have actually invested into uh, player and games and gaming studios. So, yep. I'll stick to the original question. I say DeFi is more important, and, and Michael almost, you know, uh, previewed, you know, my thoughts in so much as that, you know, Nicholas, my partner, and I, we went to El Salvador not because we didn't want to start a business here in the U.S. We're a USC corp registered in Miami, but we went to El Salvador in part because we could actually innovate there. There's basically no regulation in El Salvador, and it's not like we were looking to do anything malfeasant, but you can't innovate in the U.S. because of the regulations and because of the tax treatment, right? Every Bitcoin transaction is treated like a capital gains transaction, and so I think we're at a critical moment. What I want to highlight here is we're at a critical moment when it comes to regulation in this country, and we have you know, an SEC chairman who's um, not very favorable, even though he's very educated on on the topics, and you know, I think what happens in the next 12 to 18 months in the U.S. Congress, you know, could completely squash DeFi and its prospects for growth here in the U.S. And it's going to grow elsewhere around the U.S. or elsewhere around the world, whether we like it or not. So we should probably embrace this technology, even though it's a threat to the uh, incumbent financial system. Michael, I like it all. I like DeFi, I like NFTs, I like Metaverse. Well, I mean, so, so I am um, COO of Hut Capital, um, and so, so we did see, you know, DeFi going down a bit, and then we just saw a whole spike in the NFT. For me, for a family office, I believe in diversification, um, and that is really what Hut Capital, they do all the emerging uh, blockchain managers, whether it's globally or, you know, you know what? Forget about the general VC funds. They can't do it anymore. There's just too much now. The uh, This whole space has just grown where the managers have to be niche. Another thing that I like about managers is, for example, like advanced blockchain, what I love about what you, you guys are doing, um, they say incubating, but it's, not, it, it, it's really um, from the ground up they have developers in-house so what do I call that? Proprietary deal flow. I love proprietary deal, deal flow. The market, um, there's a lot of money coming into the market, but um, now the valuations are getting very, very high, um, and then people are chasing the same deals. So as a family office, what do we look for? We look for proprietary deal flow. Wonderful. Um, as someone who's building a metaverse, I'm obviously partial to that, but I like the phrase uh, GameFi. 
which is basically a gaming, play-to-earn gaming, uh, uh, coupled with DeFi. I think um, uh, Axie is proving that uh, concepts like UBI are actually now possible through the metaverse. So instead of uh, going to work and what have you, you can actually go to play and earn a living. And that's a whole revolution that, that we're at. Uh, uh, Axie's proven the concept, and I think that's just going to blossom. So for me, GameFi is, is the future. I just invested in GameFi uh, platform uh, yesterday that also brought me on as an advisor. I, I guess my areas, first of all, I would say that as these waves emerge, they, like any other market, they kind of get really hot and then they peak and then they kind of, you know, go down. And the quality, just like the dot-coms, you know, the quality companies survive. I mean, Amazon went to a 1000 then it went down to $5.00. And if you sold it a thousand, bought back at five dollars, and now it's like what thirty five hundred or something like that. Um, you have to know what the quali- what the quality, tr- what the trends are. But then you also have to be able to say, I think I'm going to keep the winners, and I think I'm going to like you know sell the also rands uh, if they really don't seem like they're keeping up with the uh, uh, you know with it's, it's it's you're correct. You have to really be a specialist in this market. I mean, I've got. You know, at Transform Ventures, I've got like four people that just help me with deal flow, and we're just flooded. I mean, I probably get, you know, a hundred deals a month that are, that are thrown my way to invest in, you know, want me as an advisor, et cetera. And I mean, last year I put a little under 10 million into deals, and, uh, you know, I mean, a million and a half of it was into, uh, Bitcoin mining across, uh, a couple of different SPVs and, uh, and, uh, two companies that went public. Uh, that were, that were, that were, you know, had Bitcoin mining is a good part of it, and that was a really good investment. Um, also a number of, uh, DeFi companies, um, and, uh, I put a million dollars into, uh, uh, investment also that Advanced Blockchain is in, which is SDG Exchange, uh, which is, a, a, a first, uh, kind of, um, NASDAQ for, uh, for, for carbon credit trading on a permission blockchain, and also has a public aspect as well. Anybody wants to ask me about that? Um, but you know, other things like, um, a tradery, of course, um, and, uh, you know, some things on NFTs, um, you know, aren't just, you know, PFPs. They're not just profiles. Um, I invested in, um, IceCap, which, uh, is a, uh, a, a, lets you invest in, uh, in, in real investment grade diamonds using NFTs. That's actually Eric Voorhees, uh, dad, Jacques Voorhees, who is, uh, an OG in that space. And, they went from like when I invested, they had no no sales. Their first quarter, they had two thousand dollars in sales. This month, so far, they have over a million in sales. That's a one year. So you look for things that can really scale and just grow really fast, and then just the really get to know the team. Really, uh, if you're making your own investments, I mean, you have to go and you meet the team, even if it's on Zoom. You have to do due diligence on them, etc. And so I'll move on to the next question. Um, when is Ethereum going back up to 10,000? Well, that's easy. It's never been at 10,000. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, I personally, you know, it's interesting that Ethereum um, has dipped more than Bitcoin now. It tends to be more volatile asset, um, so it tends to uh, have a wider range. I'm personally the belief that, you know, at whatever time Bitcoin gets to about 100,000, Ethereum should be in the range of 10,000. So that would imply that, um, with, you know, sort of $2,400 um, Ethereum and $35,000 Bitcoin that Ethereum, 
may have higher potential to go up. Uh, I think they're both core assets, and this is a good time. Uh, uh, even though uh, I believe your bot is not buying Bitcoin yet, but it was starting to buy Ethereum. So, um, uh, you know, I think there's still – you can never catch right to the day the bottom or right to the day the top, but you do need to be aware of cycles and trends. I don't have any comment. <laughs> Um, I think, yeah, I would probably buy Ethereum on this dip, um, and it it will likely hit ten thousand in twenty twenty two. I'm I'm a as a Bitcoin fundamentalist, I'm also long Ethereum. So getting it at these price levels is probably broadly a sensible move. I think just on price action in general, I mean, one thing to keep in mind, you know, we think we have free and open markets in the U.S. We do not. You know, these markets for Bitcoin and Ethereum and other you know relatively liquid. Um, coins and tokens are basically the only free global markets that we have. I mean, compare it to NASDAQ. If a stock, first of all, NASDAQ only operates a very limited number of hours per week. Secondly, if a stock goes down by 7% in a day, it's short-circuited, right? And you stop trading. That that doesn't happen here at all. And these markets, you know, if you want to trade Apple stock, you have one choice of venue. You can trade it on NASDAQ or NASDAQ, right? In, 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 in crypto, you have basically something like 10 global exchanges, right? Here in the U.S., we have Kraken and Coinbase. Elsewhere, there's FTX, OKX. So the, the insight there is it's fragmented even at the exchange level, right? And then there's all these derivatives. And so it's both... Um, you know, a truly global market, truly free, freely traded, but highly reflexive both on the downside, which you've seen in the last week, as well as on the upside. And so it's just a completely different dynamic and something to be aware of. And for most people who are not like Chauncey, who are not going to be staring at the screen 22 hours a day trading, you know, it's probably just better to, to have a buy, buy, buy and hold strategy and do not much more than that. Absolutely. Um, I think they have to solve the gas problem. Um, I don't know if people know that whenever you do a transaction on Ethereum, you have to pay gas fees. Uh, the NFT market has blown up, but people are paying more on their gas fees than actually earning on their or paying for their NFTs. So Ethereum 2 is, is coming out. That's supposed to uh, increase the uh, reduce the gas fees by more than 99%. When Ethereum 2 comes out, I think it's going to go quickly to 10,000. No, no, no one's talking about uh, taking away the gas fees. It's just the efficiency of them. So Polygon also has gas fees, but they're pennies instead of dollars. And Bitcoin had gas fees that drove people away, uh, including Bitcoin Jesus, when they got up to $20 per transaction. And because uh, nobody controls Bitcoin, it took several years for the 95% consensus among the miners and then the developers to be able to go and agree in uh, the kind of SegWit2 plan that finally ended up like, you know, lowering fees to now where it's uh, a fraction of what it was when it was $20. It's still a lot higher than uh, some other places like, um, you know, Polygon, etc. But, uh, and there are some, you know, uh, I mean, Wax, for example, is a, a project that I invested in and was an early advisor to was arguably the first NFT uh, ecosystem uh, token. Um, and uh, they, I believe, have more 
um, uh, NFT gaming than, than anybody, including Solana right now in terms of just the uh, number of assets. I remember they just announced that recently. Um, but, uh, you know, they have, they have no gas fees. I mean, there's, or, or they're de minimis. And because they were built on, you know, DPoS, which is, you know, we're going down a rabbit hole now about, about how different mechanisms are for, for, for securing the blockchain. There's proof of work. There's proof of stake. There's delegated proof of stake. And, um, we're, we're, we, we would have a whole panel to go into all those things. I'm going to uh, rapidly go through the last couple of questions. Uh, I'll read a few that I'm going to ignore just because they're kind of funny. Is crypto really a kleptocurrency? Um, let's see. Um, uh, this is a simple one. Do NFTs require the same amount of energy to create versus cryptocurrency? Um, and, and basically, no, but they do, they do cost gas. I think we just ran through that. Um, here's an interesting one. How will sovereign stable coins affect the crypto market, especially if the sovereignty bans crypto outside of its coin? Um, I'll start by saying that a lot of places have banned Bitcoin, and it's still, um, as long as you still have the Internet, um, it's very difficult to stop people. Uh, just like, you know, I mean, last I checked, uh, you know, marijuana is ba- uh, banned in a lot of places, and uh, it didn't stop people from uh, smoking marijuana. Um, and, uh, you know, um, Bitcoin is banned in Nigeria, and yet Nigeria has one of the highest levels of adoption. I actually have a couple of contractors in Nigeria that I pay in Bitcoin. I actually have a question. Yes. Um, so you mentioned Puerto Rico, and I would just be really interested in your perspective of how you see the community changing with so many more blockchain and crypto people moving there and how you think that will expand and deepen the uh, sure. Um, I'm always happy to talk about Puerto Rico and the community down there. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Now, um, <clears throat> the opportunity of Puerto Rico is, for those of you who don't know, it's the only place in the world that um, U.S. Um, citizens um, and green card holders <clears throat> can um, pay zero tax on their capital gains and 4% on their corporate I- income and nothing to the IRS. And that is because Puerto Rico... Um, is the largest territory. There's five territories in the United States. The other f- four combined are, are like, you know, Guam. You know, I mean, they're all 50,000-person islands. Puerto Rico is like 3.2 million people. Uh, San Juan itself is about the size of Austin, a greater San Juan. So it's a real city. It's one of the only real cities in the Caribbean other than Havana, and they've got other issues. <laughs> but um, basically, it's not a little sleepy, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Caribbean place where there's nothing to do but, but go to the beach. And so it became attractive for Bitcoin investors and, and, and entrepreneurs. I mean, really the first wave was people from the hedge fund industry. When they, they've had a series of uh, decrees between the U.S. and the territory to, um, be able to create jobs and, um, and, and also to be able to like keep it from be, being like far poorer than Mississippi and West Virginia, which it was for the first 50 years of its uh, existence as a territory. The decree they had in the 1960s to bring aerospace down for 20 years, build factories, and give tax breaks took Puerto Rico from being the, one of the poorest places in the Caribbean to one of the wealthiest. In the 80s, they did a 20-year ta- tax break to bring down the pharma industry. And even after that expired, Puerto Rico was a separate nation was the seventh largest producer of pharmaceuticals in the world. And so in 2012, they decided, let's go and do something where we're not going to build factories and then have to repurpose them once the brakes expire. And so they did software and services. 
And so the software and services is the four percent. If you're in software or services, there's certain things that are that are, are they're not included like law firms. But generally, if you're a software company or a services company, I have a services company that does advisory and and uh, and, and communications. I then spun off another one that does advisory. Um, and those those pay four percent on our uh, income. Uh, staking, by the way, is income, and you pay four percent instead of uh, you know thirty nine percent in the U S. Um, and then the great thing is capital gains. Capital gains, literally, you pay zero on your short-term and zero to your long-term. You have to report it, and then you say zero. So if you have $10 million in capital gains, you basically say, I have $10 million in capital gains. I'm paying you zero, Puerto Rico. Thank you very much. And you basically write a Dear John letter to the U.S. and say, I'm now a Puerto Rico uh, bona fide resident, and all we do on our return is really report what we have on U.S. income for our, our mainland real estate uh, holdings. Um, and really what's happened, I was the first person to move down there for the crypto world um, two years before Brock Pierce. Brock called me patient zero, which got kind of laughed at because Samantha B said, what could go wrong with that? And it's sort of like an infection and things like that. Dan Moorhead from Pantera had been asking me about Puerto Rico for quite a while because he wanted to move down. He just had to convince his wife. They found a beautiful place in Dorado Beach. And when he moved down, he, he nicknamed me the Messiah for all the people I brought down. So I guess that one's kind of stuck. There are now more than 500 people um, in Puerto Rico who have come down from the cryptocurrency uh, movement. And I'd say more than half of them have been in the last year. David Johnston, my co-founder, um, you know, was like very skeptical. He said, well, yeah, I thought we might move down. There was kind of a, you know, retire to a sleepy island thing. Now I realize there's more going on than there is in Austin. There's crypto events every week, uh, sometimes multiple times a week. And what's great is it's sort of like, you know, I, I like to say there's this thing called magical cities in terms of like a time and place where you want to be. Paris in the 20s, New York during the Algonquin Roundtable, Silicon Valley in its heyday. Silicon Valley is a ghost town right now. Literally, everybody's moving to Miami or to uh, Puerto Rico. And I'll go back to Puerto Rico, and I have more meetings and people visiting, people there, that I know what to do with it, way more than Los Angeles or New York. So, yes. 4% for corporate, zero for capital gains personally. As an investor, zero for your personal capital gains. And if you have both, which I do, and I recommend people do, if you have 4% for your company, let's say you've got a, a consulting company and you made $10 million in profit, and you pay yourself a normal salary of, say, $200,000 base, you get to not only have zero on your uh, investments, you also get to have 0% on your dividends and your bonus to yourself. So that's why the hedge fund industry moved down there first. And then oil traders and now crypto. Local taxes? No, no, it's a territory. And what happens in Puerto Rico is it's generating jobs and it's generating wealth. So, um, actually, Michelangelo, you were born in Puerto Rico. Uh, answer that question, what crypto is doing for Puerto Rico. Oh, great. Hey, my name's Michelangelo. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. So I think, um, at least for me as a founder, you know, I have a fund now. I've built AI for like five years to predict the, the markets. It's been going great. Um, liquidity markets are the big thing for startups on the island, local grassroots projects before we didn't really have any venture capital or any kind of seed investments. And so a lot of people are moving over, Pantera, for example, people like Michael, and they sign checks, whereas before there was no one, so... Is that? Yeah. 
I think it's. I think uh, I'll just. I'll just finish up on this. I think it's. I think it's. I think it's sort of the brain power that's coming down there. I mean, there was this uh, little meme that was going on when uh, Brock moved down and saying, "Hey, you're, you're ruining the island because real estate prices are going up and you can't afford a place to live." Um, it's sort of like saying, "What happened to the farmers that got displaced when Silicon Valley started building things?" Right? I mean, there's still very affordable places to live in Puerto Rico, just not in the on the Ritz Carlton uh, estates where the average Puerto Rican wasn't buying anyway. I think for the most part that uh, most of the narrative that uh, we're hurting Puerto Rico by coming down there and displacing natives is just garbage. And it was started by the Independence Party. So there's five parties down there. There's no Democrats, no Republicans. There's the Pay, which is the I want to be a state party. There's the PDP, which is the we like it as a territory. There's three different Independence Parties. And they're very loud saying Gringos get off the island. We want the island to be independent, and honestly, they they want it to be Venezuela. And and um, I don't think that's good for anybody. And I don't think the U.S. is going to let them declare independence and and become a socialist uh, country. So um, I think everybody down there, um, the real estate. Um, okay, my um, my uh, native-born uh, real estate agent. Um, who I bought both of my properties from when I moved down in 2016 and again in 2017. Um, she did $54 million of sales in the last six months. And, and before, before this act, she would have been lucky to do $2 million in a year. So there's a lot of people. I mean, the people who are buying homes out of these high prices, <laughs> they're buying them typically from people who live from the island. Yes. Um, sure. Uh, I will turn over to him. I mean, obviously, we've got volcano power and stuff. I would just say that there's a lot of data saying that uh, there's a lot of FUD that's come out about, you know, crypto costing, you know, most of the statistics you hear about, you know, gee, you know, an average, uh, you know, Bitcoin transaction costs X or Bitcoin burns up more energy than the entire country of Denmark is just garbage. Most of the stats came from a 23-year-old college student who basically was uh, was quoting institutes that he himself founded. So, and the media didn't do very good due diligence. Energy usage is a very complicated scenario. I will tell you, rhodium, which I'm an investor in, they get 1.9 cent um, uh, energy, which is 70% right now is renewable energy. And when they had problems getting energy um, from a otherwise abandoned project uh, during the hurricanes, they were able to sell energy back. So for the most part, it is uh, – and by the way, ATM machines and banks, they, they cause energy too. There's been a lot of statistics saying gold mining is 20 times the energy usage of Bitcoin mining and banks are even more. So I'm going to frame it a little bit differently. And I, um, I, think, I think this is a big deal. And so – I mean, there's a couple ways to get at it, but almost 100 years ago to the day, December 4th, 1921, top of the fold, front page, New York Tribune newspaper, Henry Ford, who is um, widely respected as a pretty you know, successful visionary and thoughtful businessman, said if you wanted to stop all wars, you would have a currency based on kilowatt hours. And that's actually what we have with Bitcoin. And so... That's point number one. Point number two is there's different consensus mechanisms for these cryptocurrencies, right? And so the most fundamental one is proof of work. There's others like proof of stake. You know, Ethereum is based on proof of work, and proof of work, as is Bitcoin, and proof of work means you just have all these computers voluntarily throwing their computing power at the network to solve math problems to achieve consensus in this, like, chatter where we say, is that a good transaction or is that a bad transaction? And that's how you can have these networks work 
with no bank or no company or no government controlling them, right? And so this is why I'm a little bit bearish on things that are moving to proof of stake or other things that are not proof of work over the long term because the reason why Bitcoin's going to win is it's not controlled by any government. You're not going to debase this currency. You're not going to manipulate it. You're not going to have a corruption. It's uncorruptible. And the insight there is you want Bitcoin to use all of the power in the world. You want Bitcoin to use more energy not less, because that's what secures what is already by far the most secure public computing network the world has ever seen. There's no industry that's ever been beneficial for humanity where at the outset we say, oh, should it use less energy? Refrigeration is good. We all agree that. It allows you to store food that's fresh for much longer periods of time. Pharmaceutical manufacturing is good. Electricity, so you can see at night, is good. Transportation, whether in the form of an airplane or an automobile, none of these industries did you ever have somebody at the outset saying we should use less energy or is the energy use worth it? This is all FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt by the powers that be who control the banking system and the governments who want you to intentionally misunderstand Bitcoin because they know that Bitcoin is inevitable. It can only be slowed down. The only way to stop Bitcoin is to turn off the Internet. And the, the last bit I'll say is the, the playbook that creates all this uncertainty and misinformation about Bitcoin mining and its energy use is the same playbook that the tobacco lobby used in this country post-World War II. And from 1950 to 1990, we had six big tobacco companies in this country. And the six CEOs of those tobacco companies never said for those 40 years, smoking doesn't cause cancer. They just raised a question about it. Does it cause the bad cancer? Do we really know for sure? And all that BS stopped in 1989 when those six CEOs were hauled in front of U.S. Congress and forced to produce the paperwork that showed scientifically they knew since 1950 that smoking would kill you if you smoked before you got hit by a bus, right? And that's the same playbook. Like, J Jamie Dimon is a very smart guy. He knows that Bitcoin is inevitable, and he sells it to his private wealth clients, right? But he talks out his mouth publicly about how this is bad and how the energy use is bad. It's all just a myth. We have to reframe it. More, big, more energy used by Bitcoin is good because that's what prevents the corruption and we can have this truly non-sovereign digital money that works for all of humanity. Yes. I, I, wrote, I wrote a long Twitter thread on this that went viral, so you can find me on Twitter, BTCNYC, um, and you can read it there. That's a great question. I, I've been very, very wary of VCs. I've been self-funding for the past decade, and so I've been very, very cautious. I have looked at capital, but every time I go out there, I just feel cap in hand. I don't feel like I'm forming a partnership with the – and so it's been a very uh, – and this is why having, you know, uh, having your friendship, Cara, was really, very powerful, and, and yourself, Sandy, as well, was because I trusted you guys. I knew you – you knew my vision for many years, and you watched me grow the vision over many years, and so it was very powerful for me uh, to have that first check come from you. And the beauty is I've got a grant as well from one of these other uh, blockchains as well, uh, ecosystem grant. So but between the capital that you've provided, the grant that you've provided, and the grant I get from the ecosystem grant, I should be able to, in theory, be able to bootstrap a, hopefully a unicorn from, from, from pre-seed funding, from, from grant funding, 
non-dilutive capital. So th this is the miracle that as an entrepreneur, as a creator, that blockchain is allowing me to do what a few years ago would be impossible to do. We didn't, you wouldn't even consider being able to bootstrap a unicorn with, with, with a couple hundred thousand dollars, but now that's possible uh, because of the uh, mechanisms available. Um, but again, you know, I've been... I've, I've, uh, I did go out a couple of years ago looking at raising a few million dollars, but it was just, a, a, just difficult, just challenging. I'm like, ah, oh. and I didn't like the, uh, the, the process. I, I think the whole VC model is, it's, it's a Ponzi scheme on some levels because all they're doing is pumping up the numbers. They're, use, they're uh, throwing money at companies, pumping up the um, uh, user base, and then just going to IPO and exiting to. So I, I don't like the VC model, and so I was very hesitant about uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the VC model, and, I, and, and it's, I'm grateful that, uh, uh, that the family office, uh, the family foundation was supporting me. Just a quick word on that. Sandra and I actually sat next to each other over dinner and we were just talking about this. And, you know, it's kind of the old adage like, hey, I'm here to help that the VCs say. But I would sum it up in one word. It's relationships, right? We built our proof of concept, this community, Bitcoin Bank in El Salvador. We're going into other countries now. We've, we're building neobanks for wealthy families in other Latin American countries. I'm personally, to, to various degrees, engaged with the presidencies of six other nations about adopting a Bitcoin standard. You know, what would they need technically you know, to, to, to walk that path. But to, to come back to the question, I was telling Sandra, like, if you have relationships at the political level or the business level high up in certain countries, mostly in the global south, like, that would be one, like, very specific example of how, you know, an investor could be, be useful to us. And so it's not like, do you have the domain knowledge? It's more like, can you get me in a door that I normally couldn't get in the door on my own? Yeah, Alfie, you know, I think your comments about VC being a Ponzi scheme are, are really interesting, and I almost want to kind of uh, discuss them because um, I think that's kind of why we do the work that we do, right, which is we're value-add investors and we're a value-add firm. And so I think that um, if it's just money that's on the table, then it is very, in some ways, predatory. Um, and so we're, we're always here to help, but um, we could we could after this have a very long discussion about how other forms of the economy are Ponzi schemes. Um, this is the, one of my favorite discussions to have with people. So yeah, uh, I think um, as a both as a family, you know, speaking as part of whether it's kinetic, uh, the VC portion of um, our investments, or the family office, or social alpha, I think our our kind of underlying theme is how will this idea or how will this project change the blockchain universe. Um, and so I think um, with Kinetic's investments across the blockchain ecosystem, uh, he really is thinking about, and Kinetic is really thinking about, what impact will this have on blockchain? How big of an impact can it have on blockchain? And where can I add value? So he's, you know, we're constantly, we, mostly Jahan, because he's the content expert, but really um, constantly adding value in terms of relationships to Dylan's point um, across his different um, you know couple hundred different portfolio companies how can block Damon help I don't know any of these you know flair or, or any of these other investments that he has and he's constantly making those various connections so I think that's really where at least at kinetic and even at social alpha where we just brought on we brought on a new fellow um, Catherine Foster who's really a climate diplomat um, from the UN and other er from um, from the UN and other areas, and you know, 
she brings a real interesting perspective uh, from uh, the innovation space in um, in climate diplomacy and climate action. So I think you know certainly the monetary you know financial impact is important, but um, for us it really is um, how can we make it bigger? How can we make the universe bigger? How can we make it deeper? Yeah, so somebody who has both taken VC money and written checks um, and did an LP in a fund um, and a GP, um, I think it's all about um, alignment of um, expectations. And, um, you know, I personally, when I, when I, when I start, um, you know, things that I incubate through Transform Ventures, when I'm an advisor or I come onto the board of a company as a, as a director or as a, or, or as a chairman or as a, just an advisor who's kind of helping them make decisions on capital raising. I mean, this market, typically you're, you're going to want to get your first, um, you know, rounds from, from angels because angels are, are easy when you're first starting out. You know, they, they want to help. They, they, they're, they're not going to demand like, you know, big board packs every month, et cetera. But, you know, I'm also a director of a public company, um, you know, SPAC, uh, Blockchain Moon Acquisition, uh, Corp. Uh, it's on NASDAQ, BMAQ. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a different world, right? You don't get, you know, you don't raise $110 million and then have pipes through like, you know, little seed investors. So it's all about stage and alignment of expectations. Um, earlier in my career, I took, um, uh, money from Sequoia Capital and Hummer Windblad and a few other VCs to, to start a company. It was very fast moving in the dot com days where I started out with angels. Um, and then all of a sudden we grew so fast that, uh, I was getting thrown all these offers and I took, uh, uh, you know, Sequoia Capital and Hummer Windblad. In the beginning, it was phenomenal, and had we made it through um, before the market tanked, um, you know, those folks will give you a much higher valuation. Look at YouTube. Look at some of the things that they've that they've done in a bull market. In a bear market, you're just kind of hanging along for the ride. And you know, in year seven of the fund, even though we were profitable and hadn't even burned through the um, uh, the money that we raised, Sequoia's like, well, you're seven, time to, time to put you on the block. It's like, wait, 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 wait. If you hold on and just till we, you know, we're making money, we got two million in the bank, we're making a couple hundred thousand a month. Nope, it's year seven, we got, we got to sell you. So I lost the board vote. We sold the company for 35 million. It's called Market Wire. Um, and, um, the company we sold it to, I mean, I lost the narrow board vote. There's no reason to sell it other than Sequoia didn't want to come down to Los Angeles for board meetings. They wanted to move on to the next fund. Um, and, and none of my guys who agreed with me wanted to go and vote against uh, Sequoia in, 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 in the board vote. Um, we, the company we sold it to sold it for $100 million 11 months later. We had, thank God, sold back to our original partner, NASDAQ, for $200 million. And then NASDAQ then merged it with another company, a smaller company, and sold it for $335 million to Apollo, where it is right now. And I understand it's uh, being shopped around for $500 million. So obviously, had, um, we had aligned expectations on a longer um, you know, sort of timeline, you know, there would have been more than 10x the return. However, over a longer period of time, I still got a nice check and I got to move on and do other things. I think the lesson of the story is just understand what stage you are and what level of, of uh, growth that you're willing to have and what level of scrutiny. If you're an angel uh, investment, you know, all they want to make sure is you're not a lifestyle and you're listening to their advice. That's what I, I expect. And then, you know, when you're moving fast and all of a sudden, you know, if one of my portfolio companies, 
uh, like Ice Cap, all of a sudden says, "Geez, you know, we just uh, <laughs> we just went from like two thousand a, a, a quarter to a, to a million dollars a month. Uh, okay, it's time to like start looking for more professional money." And now, you know, they're looking for an A round, and, and I'd be happy for them to be taking uh, VCs uh, on that round because the next round is to then go and, you know, sell it to someone like De Beers or, you know, or some strategic or, or um, see if it can be a SPAC. I mean, so it's all how fast you're moving and what your expectation level is. But the great news is there's so many, you know, great angels around. Um, by the way, everybody should sort of give their contact information. I'm at Michael Turpin, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-T-E-R-P-I-N, on everything. And if you um, kind of message me on Telegram, um, I will be happy to kind of, like, tell you what kind of stuff I'm investing in. I've got a little private uh, Telegram group of, uh, you know, it's not a syndicate. I don't take any fees. I just sort of tell people what I'm investing in, and they say what they're investing in. It's sort of just a deal flow uh, group that, uh, um, you know, I'm very proud of. And if you play by the rules, you get to stay in the group. If you shill too much garbage, you get kicked out. But uh, I think this group is a, is a good group. I have a question there. Well, that's one that I'm, I'm very knowledgeable because um, I'm chairman of a company called SDG Exchange, um, which is the first and uh, only um, global 24-7 um, um, uh, carbon credit exchange that's built on a permission blockchain. And there's several other um, tokens out there that do half of what the Paris Agreement says it should do. So Climadai is out there, Moss tokens out there. All they do is buy carbon. Climadel says we'll buy carbon and never sell it, and therefore the price will go up. Moss token equals one uh, metric ton of carbon, but because you know it can be pumped and dumped on, on, on Uniswap, sometimes the daily price um, goes up and down, and you can't retire it. So um, we're the only platform right now. We launched the COP26 that you know an actual Fortune 500 company or anybody else that needs to comply with uh, the Paris Agreement and what's known as the Task Force for Financial Disclosure that Mark Carney started that's going to kick in next uh, year where companies that are public or have more than 500 employees are going to get a climate score. And your loan rate is going to depend on your climate score, not just your Dun & Bradstreet. Um, there's going to be a big demand for that. And so, you know, we... Uh, we're, we're really the only solution right now to be able to kind of go and efficiently, you know, and transparently um, buy carbon on something that looks like NASDAQ that has an OTC desk and then retire it. And we pop up an NFT and you get to see the whole provenance and any questions just sort of uh, come up to me afterwards or uh, send me something on Telegram. Anybody else in the climate space? I think there's a few, right? So I, I spent most of my career working on renewable energy issues. I was you know, investing in renewable energy credits in the 90s before anybody knew what that was. Pre-financial -finan pre crisis, I was co-manager of Climate Change Capital, which was a $2 billion fund in 2007, exclusively investing in this space. I have a slightly different point of view here on this one as well. I, I think most of this stuff is just greenwashing. Um, unless we have, like, a truly global or even regional cap-and-trade regime, like, sh well, sure, we had Kyoto Protocol in 1997 as well, and Well, I mean, people voluntarily made Kyoto mandatory as well, right? There was a 55% threshold, so all the signatories to Kyoto had a mandatory obligation, and they ignored that as well. So, so there, there, 
let, let's just play off the thought exercise. Paris is mandatory. It's going to lead to great things. The, the question is, what are you investing in, right? And so you're maybe you're investing in some project in Brazil. So here, here's the short way to put it. If you pre if you're an originator of carbon credits, you know, bringing forward projects that actually sequester or prevent carbon emissions, and you like you actually presume that the provenance of what you're doing is good, then yes, there's a, r a real market here. The, I think the real question that I'm raising is like, are there real projects to invest in that are actually mitigating or abating carbon? That's the ultimate question. Well, there's Vera and Sarah in, in Gold Standard. We only do the top level of Gold Standard um, to basically get onto our, our exchange, and then, and then we retire them and, and spin on an NFT so you can show your government that you complied. We, all, we also announced at CES that, um, you know, because we're, we're going to permission exchange on Ethereum, so it can never go on to Uniswap, it can never go on to Coinbase. It's, it's basically like a roach motel. You basically get verified, spits out a, 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 a mint and burn token like Tether, so uh, it's unlimited supply because it's not about scarcity, it's about it mints when you prove that you've met the UN certification qualifications, and then it gets burned when you retire it. So you can either burn it and then you meet your qualifications, you can bank it so you can then burn it later or, and, and retire it, rather, because there have been a lot of problems with greenwashing of double retirement, double, double counting, et cetera. This on a transparent blockchain shows the provenance, so it hasn't been double created, shows the burning, so it hasn't been double retired. You can resell it on the exchange. And the final thing we announced at CES is we now have a patent and, and, and um, have a product that's going to be coming out shortly that allows you, because carbon is unregulated, to actually use it as an NFT for remittances and for cross-border payments. That's cool. I'd like to talk to you guys. Sure. What's everybody think about the metaverse um, being, uh, you know, say a parent? I don't want my kid to spend all their time in the metaverse. They're already doing gaming and this, that, and the other thing. How do you respond to that? I, I think that um, play to earn is going to revolutionize, like, um, a lot of lower wage work. So I think that um, people who maybe make minimum wage now might be able to uh, make a lot more at scale in the United States, so not just in the Philippines and not just in um, developing countries, as it were. And so um, I think it's here to stay. I'm very excited to see like how it evolves and um, have personally done tons of research and made investments into Metaverse. And we actually recently invested into Moxie.io. Uh, Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, uh, he started a decentralized gaming studio. And um, his first game that is play to earn has 300,000 um, gamers out of Southeast Asia. So I think we're going to see continual exponential growth. And I'm excited. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I went into gaming because of that. I came from a augmented reality perspective, and so I was like, wow, we have a technology here that we could, gr uh, we could gamify the regeneration of nature, uh, but we had to uh, figure out a way of connecting the digital world and the real world, and so we used uh, uh, augmented reality technology, uh, which augmented reality just means there's a digital layer. So through your phone, you can see a digital layer over the real world, and we were game using a game uh, um, that allowed kids to reimagine uh, urban areas uh, 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 and greenify them so they could plant virtual gardens in the real world but using augmented reality. Uh, the, the technology just wasn't there yet and uh, uh, NFTs weren't. I wrote an article in Forbes 
a couple of years ago with that play to, about play to earn and NFTs and how there was a uh, using augmented reality technology. There was, there was a way that we could uh, gamify the regeneration of nature. So uh, we, that game was designed a few years ago. The technology just wasn't available and uh, NFTs weren't a thing then. But now uh, uh, Google Glasses, uh, Google Glasses, uh, Apple are coming out with their glasses. Uh, NFTs now are a thing. So I think there's a confluence of technologies that will allow uh, gaming to merge with the real world. And so how do we uh, – and my, my, my uh, studio is mission-driven, so we're, we're thinking very, very carefully about that impact on the real world and getting kids into the real world. Now, we've got a roadmap to do that. It's not going to be on day one, but we do have this journey that we're going to take the gamers on. And if you can do uh, real-world play-to-impact – uh, and, and earn revenue uh, through that, then I think there's a real opportunity to tap into the billions of gamers that, and have them do these little micro actions that have real-world positive impact. So, so I think uh, that the, tech, the confluence of technologies is coming to, together to allow games and the real world to, to, to merge. And so that's kind of what we're uh, developing on our roadmap. The one thing I'll say is if, if you're sitting there and you don't understand the metaverse, don't don't feel bad. I've been operating in digital assets for eight years. I have I have no clue about this metaverse thing. Um, the second thing is, I, uh, that said, I, I think it is going to be a thing, right? If we were sitting here 25 years ago, we couldn't imagine the Internet on our phone like we have it today, right? So, to, and it builds on what Alfie was just saying. These technologies will be amalgamated in some way, hopefully positive way, that we can't even imagine over the next 10 or 20 years. So I look forward to, to having a front row seat. Well, I think it's all about building communities, too. And so since I am not a very competitive person and to build communities, I think that um, Kara and Dylan had mentioned that they're going to be giving away an NFT. And because I'm not a competitive person, I asked them to print out this So um, because I, I didn't even know how to even put my name in to win it. Um, so anyone that wants to be part of that community or wants to win an NFT – um, here's how you do it. So. Thank you. Oh. I'll, I'll just say something. You had mentioned what we tell our what we tell our kids. I will say our oldest son uh, was captain of his baseball team in high school. He's now a sophomore, and last year he was the captain of his esports team at university. So I think uh, we were talking to someone at dinner last night, and you know, in high school he would sit in his room and like, what is he doing? I'm all hearing all these noises. Like, but I, we found that he has built such an amazing community um, in in esports. I, I don't even know what the game he plays, but in esports, it's it's really amazing. And then our daughter is developing a our high school daughter is developing a project in upcycled upcycled fashion on the metaverse. So it's really just interesting stuff. And these kids are just light years, and they understand what the impact of all this stuff is. I was just going to ask, answer on the metaverse. It's just it, it it sort of allows somebody if they have a, I mean everybody has hobbies, right? But now all of a sudden, if you have a hobby of gaming, you can actually all of a sudden emerge from your uh, bedroom and say, "Hey, mom, I made more than you did last year." <laughs> um, so this question is for Chris. Little pivot, just uh, some um, insight about Bitcoin, or so I'm. A Bitcoin maximalist. I'm a big believer in Bitcoin, but sometimes I go deep in thought about uh, possible doomsday scenarios. And I know most Bitcoiners don't want to like face that or think about it or just kind of ignore it. 
So I have three, and I wanted to get your kind of feedback about these scenarios. So one is Satoshi is alive. He's alive. He's kicking. He has uh, $80 billion worth of Bitcoin, which is like $1.1 million. He can tank the market. He can manipulate it. It's We hope he's dead. We all hope he's dead, really. And all the Bitcoiners are like, Satoshi, you're dead. You're long gone. Um, the second one is quantum technology, possibly uh, breaking the blockchain um, and how Bitcoin kind of solves that. Um, and then the third is we talk about like decentralized technologies for Bitcoin or whatnot. But um, the trend I've been seeing as an analyst is that miners are slowly consolidating. And so in the near future, you're going to have one, two or th maybe less of big miners owning the network. So yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts. All, all great questions. So for those who don't know, Satoshi is the anonymous, pseudonymous creator of, of Bitcoin and of the 21 million Bitcoin that can ever exist, Satoshi controls 1 million if he, she, they, the organization is still in existence. Um, real risk there, you know, the first question, you know, what if Satoshi announces that he, she, they are with us and can potentially move the coins? completely unknown in terms of what that means in terms of U.S. dollar price action or fiat price action for Bitcoin. Could be good, could be bad. It's a risk, right? Um, remains it's like aliens visiting the U.S., right, or the, the world. Like, how, how would humanity react? We have no idea. Um, the second was on quantum computing. The short way I think about quantum computing, yes, quantum computing could break SHA-256, which is the, you know, the um, cryptography that protects Bitcoin. But if we have quantum computing breaking Bitcoin, like it's breaking everything in the world. Like nuclear reactors are not safe. Your money on the screen at JP Morgan just disappears. Like the world's got much bigger problems that whether Bitcoin exists or not. So I don't worry about that at all. Um, Fair point. So maybe I'm oversimplifying it. Um, it's, a, it's a risk. It's definitely a risk with quantum computing. And then the third question was, or third issue. So with, with Bitcoin, we have all these computers, just to give people context, voluntarily throwing computing power at the network, right, which is allows us to have this consensus mechanism with no entity, no government, no company controlling it. In th and it also allows digital money that's not copyable, right? Solve the double spend problem where you can't just invent the money. Um, the, the, the way that works is if, or one of the downsides is if somebody controls 51% of the computing power on the network, then they could actually double spend money or just do whatever they wanted to, right? And so that's, that's a risk. And so people say, okay, all the, the mining started moving out of China last May. It's actually starting to largely consolidate here in the U.S. I've heard people float theories with the U.S. government nationalize all Bitcoin mining within the country, if we had more than 51%, and then maybe the U.S. could actually launch a state-level attack against Bitcoin by controlling the mining here. Is it, is it I mean, just the, the, the pragmatic possibility of that happening is, is so low, I don't ascribe much value to that possibility as well. It, it could, could, it, could it something like that happen where we confiscated gold like we did in, in, what was it, 1933, in theory, but then you would actually have to go to, like, Texas and Montana and upstate New York and all these places where people like to shoot things. And so, you know, is, is, is the U.S. government going to come take it by force? We'll, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. There's a lot of game theory there. Yeah, I also, I also want to make some comments on the quantum question because this came up last year. And so because I'm always an 
avid researcher, actually found a quantum physicist out of UPenn um, and spoke with him about this possibility. And he explained that not in our lifetimes are there going to be computers that are going to be able to break uh, Bitcoin. So, um, you know, I could probably connect you with him if you'd like. I'm still friends with him. He's now become a big crypto investor. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think for the most part, you're right. If SHA-256 is broken, it breaks everything. The other thing also is that, um, you know, I think what before what would happen before that is that it might end up like, you know, finding some lost coins. But um, anybody who actually still has control of their own wallet can all of a sudden make it a lot tougher by having it a, you know, uh, multi-sig of, uh, you know, 199 out of uh, 401 uh, level of security on top of that. So there probably will be things you can put on top of the core that would then make it more difficult to break. But, again, not in our lifetime. matter for crypto and blockchain what's everybody's opinion so um the data suggests that we are not entering a bear market we are in a uh dip which there have been several so far this year we've been in a sideways cycle most of the year between 30 and 60 ish thousand and um uh, there is a fair amount of manipulation that happens from the whales who basically like to make more Bitcoin because the way they can just continue to spend, spend like billionaires and never deplete their supply of Bitcoin by shaking out the newbies. And, um, you know, the fear, the fear and greed index, whenever it goes down to the bottom is when the, you know, there's maximum fun and the people who bought it 50,000 are like, oh my God, it's going to zero. I better sell now at 30. And then the whales are buying it. And, you know, because of, uh, the, uh, amount of things that you can do with uh, wiping out people with uh, with leverage. I mean, some OG that got it at a nickel, it's pretty simple for them. I mean, simple because I've done it a few times, uh, to simply go in and you can track whale wallets where they'll move in some, some uh, uh, a bunch of Bitcoin into a single exchange because they're all kind of connected now. Where if one drops 10%, everybody's going to drop 10%. So they'll go and have a whole bunch of, uh, you know, uh, shorts and they'll go intentionally through their own massive power on one exchange, dump um, the price by 10000 Everybody dumps. They collect all the money that they have on, on, on the short, and then they end up buying it up at the bottom and, you know, wash and repeat every couple of months. And, um, you know, and then, and then a lot of times there's, they'll, they'll then throw out a lot of fun saying, oh, this is because of this. This is because of that. No, it's because there was a couple of whales that did this. And um, as the network gets bigger, it gets harder to do. Um, I will say that if you, you want to go and follow a couple of whale watch um, um, uh, reports, and when you see a large amount of Bitcoin or ETH moving in, it typically means a dump is coming. When you see a large amount of Tether coming in, it usually means that someone's planning to make a big buy. And maybe they're going to dump one last time and then buy. One billion dollars of Tether got moved into a single exchange um, yesterday. So that shows that there's a, somebody's planning on making a billion-dollar buy. So um, I'll just leave it at that. It wasn't me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think uh, you know, for for me, I mean, to my husband's dismay, who's a former FX derivatives trader, I just continue to so slowly accumulate, hold it. So it doesn't matter to me whether it goes up or down. Yeah. Um, so Michael, that's a great point. Um, also, Bitcoin does drop when it gets banned by, say, China. So um, that was a huge uh, predicator of that last year. But um, so, yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, 
I will say I actually do think we are entering a bear market, uh, but I I think that it's it's going to be one of the shortest bear markets ever. I think it'll literally just be a six month flip where everything tanks and then we're going to have this renaissance in the summer again. It's, it's going to be like I think it's going to be DeFi summer 3.0. Um, I think if it's longer, it might be 12 months, but there's so much more capital than there's ever been that you know. As I think I said before. Um, the data shows that typically we, it should be a 24-month cycle, which means, again, we may not get that much higher than the previous high, 67,000 this cycle. The data would suggest we should get to 85,000, which is 10x than what the last halving was over 24 months. So, you know, it was pretty, I mean, it, it, was, it was, you know, as Mark Twain said, um, you know, history doesn't uh, repeat, always repeat, but it tends to rhyme. And so we've been going down like one Bollinger Band um, every every cycle, and we've been extending it with diminishing returns. So basically you had 100x in 12 months for the first halving. You then had 30x in 18 months. So it suggests that the trend continues. is going to be 10x over 24 months. 24 months means that we would have the all-time high roughly around May. And it doesn't have to be, you know, 300,000. It's probably going to be somewhere around 80, 80 to 90,000. Potentially get a little retail FOMO finally, which is, is we had some retail FOMO in, uh, in, um, just on Google searches in April. We've got none right now, but if all of a sudden it goes from, you know, if it goes down to say 30 right now or 29 and then pops up to 50 and then pops to 80, that's when retail gets in and says, Oh my God, it's going to 300. I better buy at 80. And that's when the whales start, uh, you can see they start selling and they buy back, you know, a year and a half later. Yeah, I was just going to say follow Glassnode. Follow Glassnode on YouTube and Twitter, and you'll see all the, they share all the data like in a 20 minute YouTube session. Pantera did just that. They said it was going to be going to be 115,000 this past July, and it didn't happen. It's 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 how it's it's money moving on and off exchange, right? Whether with Tether, which is just a, a U.S. dollar derivative, or the actual crypto itself, Bitcoin, ETH, whatnot, right? It's 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 the it's it's the amount of time that certain large wallets have had their assets dormant, right, on exchange, which you can see, right, and 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 they you start to see these bands and these waves. It's almost like the 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 digital equivalent of looking at 
like 200-day moving averages and starting to layer all this together. So Glassnode's a great resource for that. Just one quick additional frame. I mean, I think it's useful to keep some perspective here. You know, even after this pullback, Bitcoin is $700 billion, 0.7 trillion, right? The total digital asset market as of this moment is about 1.7 trillion. Apple stock, even after the pullback last week, is 2.7 trillion. Apple stock is still unto itself almost double the size of the market. The insight is it's still to be blunt about it, it's still kind of like a shitty little retail market. We're only starting to get like dribs and drabs of institutional money, and I think we're still in a bull market. I agree with Michael's assessment. We're probably halfway through this bull market, and you know, over the next 6 to 12 months, we'll start to see the peak. right? But I, I'm expecting in relatively short order, we might be in a permanent bull market as we start to get real institutional flows and go from something that's order of magnitude 1 trillion to 10 trillion, and probably something that's order of magnitude 10 trillion to 100 trillion, right? And so these movements from 60 to 30 are going to look like blips, you know, in a very short period of time. Well, I, th I think Michael put it well, like it, it just becomes much more difficult and it becomes, it's like a spring and a suspension of a car and as you get a much more bigger vehicle, it just becomes much less volatile. So, No. Yeah, well, something I want to also bring up is that what people don't realize is that the vast majority of Bitcoin is always held. It's never traded. Something like 80 to 90 percent is just held, right, because people are holding. They, they think it will go up. So, um, And that's actually one of the reasons why there are so many other, like, blockchains, like Ethereum is mostly used for decentralized finance, and people transact with it all the time, whereas people who have Bitcoin don't necessarily want to transact with it. They're very greedy about it. It's seen as this gold standard almost, no pun intended. So I really, like, when he's saying whales manipulate the market, it's because they're, they're, they're one of few parties that, like, actually do come in and out. The long-term trend is the growth of users, and it's been following the Internet growth. Um, Vitalik's dad, Dimitri uh, uh, Buterin, um, posted a, a chart about a month ago that showed the um, growth of the Internet versus the growth of Bitcoin. Other than at the very beginning when you went from, like, you know, one user up to, like, a couple of hundred users, it's literally been, like, within, like, you know, one or two percent month by month, year by year. We're right now at the end of 1997. We're at 320 million users. That's about where that's about where the internet was. Today, the internet is about four billion. So that would then imply that in 25 years you're going to be maybe even a little quicker. But in 25 years you'd be at four billion um, um, uh, users that have at least some Bitcoin. And the fact that you know there's only 18.8 or whatever um, million Bitcoin. Um, you know, supply and demand, even though you have cycles in between, if every millionaire in the United States wanted to own one Bitcoin, they couldn't. And, um, you know, forget about even the best of the rest of the world. So that, as you go from 300 million people having some Bitcoin to 600 million to a billion, I think a billion is really the tipping point. That should probably be within the next three years.
Yeah, and, and Glassnode and other resources will take you through. Like, it's getting more diverse over time, right? You've got people in El Salvador now who never had a bank account buying small fractions. And you've got people all around the world. You know, Turkish lira is tanking, right? I've got many friends in Turkey who a year ago would laugh at me about Bitcoin, even though I had been evangelizing the seven years trailing. Right now, they're like, holy moly, maybe I should put some money in Bitcoin. So to my, this is just building on Michael's point. We're going from several hundred million users to several billion users, and it's you're not going to time the market. Yes, there's, it's highly manipulated. It's the most reflexive market, both on the upside and downside, that we've ever seen in the world and probably will ever see because it's a truly traded market. But, like, hold for the long term. If you take any reasonable time horizon, five years or more, you're probably going to make a lot of money. Well, well the, the first Bitcoin blocked was January 3rd, 2009. So, so my belief is I think that if we, if we do have a crypto winter, it's going to be shorter. Why is that? Because there's so much pent-up demand by this whole sea of institutional investors that are going to be coming in. I was, uh, I was just on the phone with an endowment last week, and um, this one guy who's um, um, the crypto guy for the endowment said he's getting 45 um, headhunting calls a week begging him to go to another endowment because like, all the endowments feel like they're behind the eight ball. There's so many institutions feel like they're behind the eight ball. The eight ball. So I agree with what Dylan's statement was, is that the demand, I mean, it's just coming now, that, that tipping point of institutional money coming in. It was so wonderful for family offices. You know, like, rarely does a family office have a competitive advantage. In this space, we had a competitive advantage because with all the regulatory issues, the institutional investors were afraid to come, come in. And so it was at this, you know, at this space that it was it, it, it paid to be a, a family office, but now I mean, just talking about this year, it's the ways coming now. One thing that's a really unknown factor is the fact that because of the um, elongating cycles, again, 12, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, perhaps. Once you go to 30 months, you still are at roughly a little bit under four years. In fact, it's been less and less each time. So the next halving cycle, you're going to have a period where you have two halvings potentially within one cycle, and nobody knows what that's going to mean. So everybody has a personal strategy. I typically look at um, – yes, I typically, when I look at um, uh, certain factors, it's not necessarily on – um, the actual dollar value, it's where it is in the cycle. And if it's at the kind of, um, you know, um, if it's at the top of the, of the risk-reward cycle, yes, I'll sell quite a bit of it and then keep it there in kind of DeFi and, um, and then wait until the bottom. So you make a lot more. You don't, I mean, I'm not a day trader, but you make a lot more if, if you're looking back in time and you ended up, you know, selling at or near the all-time high. I certainly sold a lot in the, you know, December, January time frame of uh, 2017, 18. 
um, and then you bought back again in uh, January of 19 when it was 3500 which I did quite a bit that 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 month um, you know you then you know sell in the, the 60s and you know you have to just look and see where you are <laughs> honestly at the fear and greed cycle um, which which is tracked on Twitter um, when 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 everybody's greedy is when you want to be selling. When everybody's fearful is when you want to be buying. And I believe that goes all the way back to a, a statement by uh, Warren Buffett. I, I also want to point out that the big macro guys in the space, like Dan Moorhead of Pantera, the general consensus is that no one's selling until maybe three hundred thousand. Like uh, 10T founder Dan Tapiero, who's a big macro guy, said this, and uh, yes. Right, they're both in Puerto Rico now. Um, that's that's the general feeling, uh, but mo like a lot of people will never sell ever. Like most of my friends who are whales are believe that like they'll go to El Salvador, they'll go to countries and like transact in 20 years. And, the and, and, and I, I certainly know people who've been buying since 2013 who basically were wealthy from other industries and literally said, "Yeah, I haven't sold a single Bitcoin because it's there for my grandkids." Hodlers, yes. Well, um, what I want to say is really we have here in this room such an incredible bunch of people, not just the panelists, but the audience as well. And what we wanted to do is build in just a, uh, at least 15 minutes for you all to mingle and actually get a chance to go up to the panelists and share your viewpoints and for the panelists to also get to know each of you uh, as you wish. So please take some time to do that. Come join our 361 firm community of investors and thought leaders. We have a lot of events created by the community as we collaborate on investments and philanthropic interests. Join us.